0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, we start a brand new series, excited about this series. We're going to spend time in the book of Matthew, and I'll kind of explain where that comes from. And this series, probably for like the next five weeks, we will be in Matthew. And these are part of the pericope, which is a big word. Not that big, I guess, but it's a, it's a word you can use in Scrabble next time. So does anyone know what pericope means? So there's churches. So if you grew up in a Lutheran church, or even a Catholic church, it, or a Presbyterian church, even, there's a series of readings that they have on every Sunday. So this is going to seem familiar. And if you grew up, and I'll kind of tell you the history of where this comes pericope literally means peri means around. And it's not how you spell it for like peri when you, like Perry knife, that's spelled differently. And it's not how you spell it for peri when you play fencing. Play fencing? What? A compete at fencing, there's the word. So peri just means around. So if you have a periscope in Latin, this is a scope that. Looks around, so that's the idea. So the pericope is started way back when at the synagogue. So the first part of the sermon is going to be kind of a little Bible class, just a little bit, and then we'll kind of get to what we're talking about to, to lead up to Matthew. So the pericopes back then, this is when they had the synagogue worship, and they would have uh, they'd pick readings. So back then they had the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, and then they had the prophets. So they would use these; these would be on select Saturdays because it's the Sabbath, and they would go through these readings. We have instances, for example, where Jesus uh, went to the temple, you can think of that, or the, went to the synagogue and he read, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. It's very likely that that was the reading for the day, which is kind of cool, I think. So they've been doing this for a while. So within about 30 years after Jesus, they started taking some of the New Testament, uh, the, the epistles, and they started reading those as well, in the Christian worship services. This is now Sunday, so they're reading these. And this goes on, it was, they're just kind of picking and choosing until the guy who actually took The Bible, I'm getting mixed up. There's so many people here that people normally who sit over there are now over here. This is really messing me up a little bit. (laughs) I'm going to just do this. So then now it's accurate. Now it's accurate. Um, So the the guy who took the Bible and he put it into Latin, does anyone know who that is? Jerome. You heard of Jerome? Anybody? I'm a bigger dork than I thought. So, okay, so Jerome is a big deal in the church because he translated, it's called the Vulgate. You may have heard the Vulgate. He's the one who translated. He picks these readings out and this is used for all of the Catholic church. So they kind of adopt this for a while. And then it gets to Charlemagne. You've heard of Charlemagne. Tell me Charlemagne, please. Okay, Charlemagne's right around 800. And so he was the uh, king of the Franks, which is the French people and the Lombards, I think. And then eventually he became the ruler of Of, this will end soon, don't worry. He becomes ruler of the Romans, the Roman government. And he says, I want um, everyone to worship the same way. So he says, I want these readings to be in every single church. And he is like the unifier of Western Europe. So when you think about the, the, the um, not Eastern European, but the Western European, the unity that's there, there's the connections there, that's mostly from Charlemagne. And so he pushes these readings. He just did one change. You know what the change was? You can thank him. He shortened all the readings. He had his person like they had two, three chapters in the Old Testament. And he's like, uh, eh, we'll just maybe go down to one account. And that's kind of how, it, so we had these shortened readings. And various people had different readings over time, just so you know that this didn't come right down from heaven. If you go to a church and they say, the appointed reading for this Sunday. That's not straight from God. The Bible is, but not the readings. 1950s, there's a group called the ILCW. Does anyone know what this is called? ILCW, the Inter-Lutheran Commission on Worship. Sounds like a fun group to hang out with, doesn't it? <laughs> so I, I imagine they're like, yeah, I can meet on a Friday night, no problem. <laughs> like, I got nothing else going on. So th- this group of people came up with the readings that you know. So if you grew up in a Lutheran church at all, if, even if it was um, ALC or EL, I'm going to mix those up, ALC, I think an ELCA now, or uh, Missouri Synod or Wisconsin Synod, They all use the same reading. So when you go to like your friend's church or something, you're like, huh, this is the same reading that we have on Pentecost 16. I mean, because you've said that to yourself a lot, right? Mm -hmm. So these are actually changing when we get the new hymnal. They do modifications and things like that. So where do I get, why does that matter? I put these in the wrong order on purpose. Um, The the pericope follows, the ILCW series follows a three-year series, so if you track this, you, you have a hymnal you can look up and you can see the readings for each Sunday. And a lot of pastors only preach on those readings. So if you grew up in a church where it, you're like, what does this have to do with, um, you know, time?" Because they follow the ILCW. And so what they did is they picked, the, the longest one is Matthew and Luke, and then they mixed kind of together John and Mark, depending on which year they focus on. So now we've got a quiz. Two of these are actual 12 of the 12 disciples. Do you know which two? So we got some, you don't have to say it out loud because I think this would be an embarrassing point. And the, your kids are in Rock Kids, so you don't have to worry about them bugging you again. So um, Mark is or is not a disciple? He is not a disciple. So he would have been a believer, of course. His mother was a follower of Jesus. And he's the guy, and when you read about the book of Acts, it says there's a guy who followed around with Paul, and his name was not, he didn't go by Mark, he went by John Mark. So this is his story. And if you read uh, the book of Mark, he's kind of like, I'm not saying this in a derogatory way, but he's kind of like ADHD, the way that he writes. It's the shortest book, and then he has the phrase, like, and then, and then, and then. Like, that's how the book moves. It's like, so that's Mark. We're not going to talk about Mark today. Luke is also not a disciple. He was a doctor and he did research and he wrote actually most of the New Testament, not as far as number of books, but he wrote most of the New Testament as far as volume because he wrote the Gospel of Luke and then he also wrote the Acts of the Apostles. So those together are the most words that we have. So John, we know he's, we attribute five books to John. It's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, John the Gospel, uh, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then uh, Revelation. The end. So Matthew is the one, he's a later convert to Christianity, and he is a disciple, one of the 12 disciples, and he's a tax collector, so he's not very well liked, but he would have been pretty well educated. So he would have known multiple languages. Has anyone ever gone to a market in uh, Europe? You know, Charlemagne's territory. If you ever go to one of the markets, they kind of eye you up and figure out what language you would speak, right? So I look about as American as Americans can look, so they always just jumped on English. But a lot of times they'll go French, they'll start speaking French, they'll start speaking Italian, they'll start speaking English, they'll start speaking uh, Belgian, they'll start speaking other languages. Uh, so they, they do this because they have to, right? That's their job to try and get you to buy their stuff. Matthew very likely would have known multiple languages for sure Greek because what's you trying to collect this money, he's a Jewish guy collecting money from Jewish people on behalf of the Gentile government. Not a real well-liked guy. And um, so he becomes a convert, Jesus goes to his house, there's a bunch of sinners, that's where it comes in, and a really bright guy. And if you remember one thing about Matthew, just one, just think, okay, I want to know one thing about Matthew. He's writing to a Jewish audience. And so his main driving force is, I want to show you that Jesus is the promised Messiah. That Jesus is the Christ that was promised to everybody. So, of all the people who write the Gospels, he quotes the Old Testament more than anybody else. And so where does this come up? He uses, he uses parts of the pericope, like the, the prophets and that what they would have had on their regular synagogue worship, he uses parts of those and he quotes those in his book to say, see, this is what it said about the one to come. That one to come is Jesus. That's kind of the end of the Bible class part. We get to the section that we, we run into today, and this is a tricky kind of beginning. So the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. So we hear this phrase all the time. Usually it's kingdom of God, not just a movie, but it's the kingdom of God. as used by the other writers. He is, I think, the only one who says kingdom of heaven. What do we mean by the kingdom of heaven? You no, know this is harder than the other one. So let's just look through a few passages, and we'll, we'll talk about it. Bible class number two. Uh, this is John the baptizer shows up. These are going to be in order. Matthew 3, 2. John the baptizer shows up. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So is this a place? What, what is this? So he says, be ready. You've got to repent of your sins. This is Jesus, one chapter later. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Near. So very similar to what John the Baptizer said. And a lot of people, this just surprises them because they think Jesus was only about hugs and forgiveness and things. But here he's saying, you got to change before the kingdom of heaven comes, okay? Uh, blessed are those, this is Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. That means good things that they do, uh, perfection, holiness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So the, the persecuted ones have this kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless you, your righteousness, your perfection, surpasses that of the Pharisees, those were lay people who were really, they, they would have been on the IOCW committee, um, and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So unless, you, unless you're even better, uh, you're doing more good works than these Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. He's the last of the Old Testament prophets. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. What does that mean? I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. This is where God gives you the ability to forgive sins as a Christian to other Christians. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What is it? And, and writers struggle to try and figure it out. And you, you, you wonder, is it like the state of being? The best definition I've, I've heard, and I don't think it's a super awesome one, because it's a bunch of words. You can't just say it like in a singular word. You can't say like it's a state of being. It's, it's not just being a believer. It seems to be God working in the world and within the hearts of believers, So I'll just, this is not so awesome you should write it down maybe, but you you can, uh, twice, underline it. God working in the world in the hearts of the believers. And this is kind of the idea, it's not really a state of being, because I think we've all been in states, uh, certain states of being. And this is what I mean by it. Has anyone read on like uh, ketosis or ketogenic diets? Uh, So ketogenic diets are saying like super low carb, and then you get to this point where your body is burning fat instead of burning carbohydrates. So this is the idea. So ultra runners, oftentimes, many of them are moving to this diet where they eat a ton of fat instead of just carbs because you can't eat enough carbs. Uh, That's the biggest challenge of being an Ironman triathlete. You can't get enough carbs if you're functioning off carbs. You have enough fat to run for like 20 days. Depends on how. (laughs) I've got enough fat to run like 20 days if you can switch your system. So they say you're in this state of being. Is it... This state of flow, have you ever heard that? Anyone read the book Grit? When you practice something enough, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this, like 10,000 hours, you get to this point where you're so practiced that it's just flow. Like no matter what you do, if you've done this enough with um, deliberate practice, they say, you get to a point where you can just function. And a friend of ours, uh, Amy's best friend from work, we went on a double date. I don't know why I just said double date. I haven't used that word for 30 years, so it wasn't a double date. Because we're married, so what do you call it? We call that going to dinner together, that's what you call it. So we went to dinner together and he's a musician, he's got a band, he sings like kind of twangy, he's younger than I am but sings like twangy country. And um, he was telling a story where I saw one of his shows, we were at a brewery and for a library event, we saw one of his shows and there was a guitarist there and he mentioned, oh yeah, that's really interesting because the guy's name was like something Taylor and he was the guitarist for the Dixie Chicks. So have you heard of the Dixie Chicks? He is not in the Dixie Chicks, but the Dixie Chicks guitarist played in his band for that day. So it's like a one-off deal. I'm like, what would you ask then? What was his political views? No, that is not what I asked (laughs) because that's not what I asked about the Dixie Chicks guitarist because they're pretty open about what they believe. I instead said, "Well, is he good?" Of course, what is the answer? He says, "I'll tell you what, Jared. I literally did not say a single word to him the whole set." I didn't tell him the key, I didn't tell him the tempo, he just played. And I'm like, he's like, right on. Like, didn't make a single mistake, didn't have anything. This is a guy who's practiced so much, he is so good. I think that's good if you're a guitarist, that's a big deal. Like, he didn't, you didn't say capo this or do anything, they would just start playing and he would just start playing. I'm like, that's pretty, so that's like a state of being, right? And the reason I bring that up is because there's a lot of things that take a ton of work to get to this state of being. If you've been physically fit or you feel like you're on the top of your game with work, um, all this takes work. It takes work to be a good teacher. It takes work to be good at whatever you do. Is that what this is? I don't think it is, right? He says, and you, to, to get to this point of the kingdom of God, you'd have to, I mean, just look at this. Just think. Repent for God working in human hearts. is you, God's coming, he says, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, again, repent, for God is going to be coming. God's going to be working in people's hearts. Is this something you can work for? Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Is because they work so hard? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses the Pharisees, you're not going to have the kingdom of God. You can't work hard enough to get to the state. It's not like something that we just say, okay, I'm going to just go on these committees, I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to volunteer, and, and then I'm going to get to this kingdom of God. How do we get to that kingdom of God? If you have this thing known as the kingdom of God, you're greater than even John the Baptist. I'll give you the keys to heaven. What, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. So what, what he's saying is to a believer there is nothing, it's not some state of being we work to, but for a believer, there is nothing more precious than understanding who Jesus is and who God is and having that in your heart. And here's how he illustrates it. He's, this is what it's like for a believer. The kingdom of heaven, to have that, is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. If it wasn't talking about faith, I'd say that's the stupidest life plan I've ever heard in my life. Like, just think, let's just change the scenario once. The key, my friend found a super sweet car he couldn't afford, so he sold everything he had and bought it. I mean, my wife really liked this ring, so she sold everything she had and bought it. Like, this is the most ridiculous life plan I have ever heard, but what is the point? The point is that this is something that is so transformational, so valuable, that you would do anything to get it. So there's transformational things in your life that have happened. What think of transformational things that you would never want to get rid of again? Now that you, once you've experienced it, and maybe it's like a mattress that doesn't fold in the middle, like I had. You know, like you know, like maybe this is something you get a recliner and you're like, I'm never going to change heated seats. If you grew up in Wisconsin, that would have been the dream. I grew up on the vinyl seats. You'd sit on them and you'd shoot out the back because you can't stay on them. So there's certain things that are life-changing to me and willing to get. So when we got married. Uh, Amy and I had a baby and this was uh, in Boulder we went to visit Boulder so you can imagine this is this is I didn't even realize how stereotypical it was we go to Boulder and there's a man there with this contraption of wrapped cloth all around and he he could function he was getting ice cream I could picture the place even he's getting ice cream cones for his kids he had like five of them it's Boulder and they were all on a bike no that's not true (laughs) They, 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 so, so he had these ice cream coats, and he had two hands. I thought, that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen, because I had a baby at the time. And you ever try and do anything with a baby? You're afraid you're going to hurt the baby. <laughs> like, so you're trying to do stuff, and you're, you're trying to fry things or cut tomatoes, and it's not, it's not going well. So this man had, I asked him, what is that? He said, the over-the-shoulder baby holder. Now, I got a photo of it, if you want to see this. I didn't, I didn't want to have it dated, so... Um, this is <laughs> so this is the photo I found. This is, that's about how cool I looked with it. That's actually, <laughs> this is Princess Diana, uh, actually in the over-the-shoulder baby holder. And it, it's so transformative. I would never, if you talk to me and you're having a baby, I'm like, hey, do you have a baby sling? This is probably like the number one question I ask you because it totally changed my life. We found a later one that was cooler, the new native bo- uh, baby holder, something like that. But at the time, I, we made $1,500 a month, total. And I paid $50 to get this contraption. And it's the greatest purchase I ever made in my life. What, what are some of the greatest purchases you've ever made that you said, I would never want to go back in time? I mean, I can think of moments, like when I, I ran into a pom, guy who had a Palm Pilot, and I said, I need one of those. And that became the Palm 5, and then the Palm whatever, and then the CLIA and then this one, and then finally the iPhone, which I think um, it moved up to the next level And some of your Android. But there's a point where you see these things that totally change your life, Right? Maybe it's Excel spreadsheets or I'll run into pastors now who are usually older than I am but they're not very good typers. They're like, oh, I'm a terrible typer. Like 30 words a minute. Now just put this in perspective. You know how much stuff I have to type a week? Could you imagine like hunting and pecking? I know a guy who hunts and pecs. Like, does this make any sense? How about call Mavis Beacon? You know, like this would double your work output instead of just like going like this and like this. I can't can't even think about that. Or as a, a finance guy, could you imagine not being able to use Excel? Or like a spreadsheet, could you imagine trying to function like that? Think how hard it would have been for Enron to lie without expel spreadsheets. I mean, it's been super difficult. So all these things are transformational things, but I'm guessing the most transformational things in your life are not that. I think sometimes it's things that have happened to you. Not always the positive things, it's things that have happened to you. And you think about, um, I was in a conversation with someone, and they're talking about a conversation they had with someone else, and they said, words were said, words were said that could not be unsaid. Can you picture conversations you've had with people where they've said things to you, and words are said that can't be unsaid? I think that affects you more than the most positive things. And you think about what people have done to you, maybe physically, uh, what people have done to you to shame you. And when you read God's word, when you open up God's word, we'd like to think that there's this righteousness that we can kind of climb to, but we can't attain it. We just can't get there. And the Bible doesn't just say, like, people are bad. The Bible says you're bad. And I think that's a big, big difference. Now imagine you're just in a conversation and someone is talking about it, and they say, yeah, people are ugly. Now what happens if that same person says, you are ugly? That's a whole different story. Now when you open the scriptures, and we'd like to think we're really great, It just cuts to your heart. That's how it says it. It it just cuts to your heart. And it's the kind of thing that completely crushes you. Because this is who you really are. You really are a sinner. You're the one who has done this. You really do have shameful things. You really have things that you don't want anyone else to know. Just hold that thought for a second. Has anyone read Strength Finders? I'm going to just enjoy that photo for one more second. There we go. Uh, Anyone read Strength Finder? Finder 2.0? No one read 1.0, I don't think, but 2.0, that makes it sound like way better, right? Like 2.0, so some of you for work have to read this. There's like 300, or there's like 30 or something different um, strengths that you have. And so depending on your organization, they make you read, th- get, you get to read things like this, so you understand how other people work. And I think it's absolutely huge. When you understand how other humans work, it's way easier to work with them. Because most of us, um, read me, think everyone should function like I function, so when they don't, I get really frustrated then you realize, oh, people function in different ways and this makes sense. So one of these activities, this came up because we went to a wedding a couple months ago. And we're at this wedding and we got put on the same table as someone I went to high school with and he is now a president of a a high school. So he's doing really well and his wife was my locker mate. So my last name went OLD, hers went OL, something like that. So, So hers went. we were next to each other for four years. And we start talking, and he brings up this book, Strength Finders. They're working at it at the high school and things like that. And, he, and, and my wife had read the book, and I had to read the book, and I don't remember much about it. And uh, he was talking about certain attributes and traits. So has anyone heard of the Wu? Is, this is an actual, I thought he was making this up. I thought it was a move or something, like a kung fu move or something. The Wu are people strong in the Wu. I love that. People, this is straight from the website. I'm not making this up. People strong in the Wu theme love the challenge of meeting new people and winning them over. They derive satisfaction from breaking the ice and making a, per, uh, a connection with another person. This was about halfway through the conversation, but up until that point, I thought, man, he's working really hard to be friends. Like, he's a good guy, and I, you know, we're enjoying our time together, but he's like, hey, you guys want some cake? I'll get the cake. You know, because I'm like, I don't feel like sitting up. He's like, I'll get it. And I'm like, ah, I don't know if I want a drink. He's like, I'll get the drinks, all right? Anybody? Anybody? You know, he was just like working it. I'm like, wow how does he get this much energy? And then this comes out and then we're laughing about it. I'm like, I, that sounds exactly what I'm witnessing. Like right now, I haven't seen him for 20 some years and he was working so hard for us to like enjoy being around him and hanging out. And then his wife tells a story about when they went to Tennessee recently to see, she's like, she didn't even, he didn't even know these people. And let's just say it was an expensive evening because he started buying uh, rounds and he started paying for things to get these strangers to like him at this establishment. She just goes, yeah, Life with the woo. So this is, the, this is where she, she's dealing with. But I think all of us, and I'll bring this back around. I think all of us have this desire to be accepted. All of us have this desire for people to like us, but we're confronted fully head-on with Scripture that says we're not all that awesome. Right? If you honestly look at the Bible and it says where you stand it's not just things that people have done for you. It's, it's things that you have done. It's things that you don't want anyone to know about. It's things that you're ashamed of. It's great to be a woo when you're on top of your game, right? But just think about when you've tried to get someone to like you when you're not at the top of your game. Like, what, Do you ever have someone who wants to close talk with you and you haven't brushed your teeth yet? And you keep like turning to the side and you're kind of doing this. And you're, you're like, just give me some grass or something to chew on. or so, Give me something to hide this. Uh, I, nothing. Pretend you're coughing or something. So you ever done that? Or you ever go somewhere and you have to present somewhere and you didn't iron your shirt so you got to wear a sweater when it's August? <laughs> like, do you... Like, if you're not at the top of your game, it's really awkward, right? you got a stain on your shirt. You don't want to talk to people. you got a big pimple on your forehead. It's really hard to go, like, make that big introduction. The first high school days are coming up and, like, go talk to that cute boy or something like that. And now you feel super awkward. What is it like to stand before, not just the human, they make us nervous. What's it like to stand before the holy God? Knowing what's really in our heart. Knowing what is deep down the things we've thought or we've seen or we've done or maybe we're the ones who said things that can't be unsaid. They try and describe this in the book of Luke. They said on the last day it's going to be like this. They're going to yell, fall on us into the hill's cover. us. I, I don't want anyone to see me. I, don't want, I just want to be hidden so no one sees this. This is the beauty of the gospel. Because the ultimate wooer is God. The ultimate war is God. What, what is God willing to go through to try and get you into his realm? What is God willing to do to show that he loves you? God doesn't love you because you've done all the righteous things like a Pharisee. God doesn't give you the kingdom of God because you've, you're good enough or you're pretty enough or you've done enough. God says, I love you because I love you. My friend spent a whole lot of money to bring strangers in. What kind of payment did God make on a Friday night? What was he willing to pay out so that you would love him? He sends his Holy Spirit so that you can know, I think the biggest thing, acceptance, forgiveness, love. What would you pay for that? Acceptance and knowing that God loves you and forgiveness is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then with his joy sold everything he had and he bought that field Again, to be accepted by God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it.